Hi everyone, this is Caleb, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. I am honored to be joined today by Sharon Hade Miller, and I'm talking with her about her brand new book called The Cost of Control, Why We Crave It, The Anxiety It Gives Us, and The Real Power God Promises. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things that inform pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. The first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, the kind of conversations that maybe you don't feel like you can talk with anybody about, or maybe maybe you've tried to talk with somebody about it and it didn't go very well. And so now you're like, what do I do? Because I'm thinking all of these thoughts, but I don't know where to take these questions that I have or these thoughts or these things that I'm trying to explore. We could take them right here on the Learner's Corner podcast because we want to create the type of environment that invites questions. And we're not always sure that we have the answer, but we're always willing to talk about it and to figure it out together. We also believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them or not. And that sometimes we learn from what they got right, and other times we learn from what they got wrong. We believe that we can learn from anything, whether it's something a little bit more serious or, or heavy. And we believe that we can learn from the lighter, the fun topics, maybe the trivial topics as well, and that they have something to teach us. And really the motivation for a lot of what we do here on the podcast, a lot of what I do, is to be the person who was there for me, to be the mentor that that I had as well, and to return the favor to the next generation because of what the previous generation has done for me. And maybe you don't have that person, but you want to be that person. Maybe you didn't have that person growing up, but you think about what it would have been like and you want to be that person for other people. Well, you're welcome here on the podcast because that's exactly what we want to do. We want to be those types of people. Now, if you have been uh, journeying with us for a while or whether or not you are uh, fresh to the journey, I do want to tell you about one way that you can keep up with everything that we're doing here on the podcast, and it's by subscribing to my newsletter, which is found in the show notes to where I just give you all of the things that are making me think and some of the things that I am learning from as well. Whether that be music or movies or podcasts or books or just quotes and stuff, whatever is capturing my attention and uh, imagination and curiosity right now. And you can just go ahead and subscribe to that and you will get that in your email box once a week. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Sharon and then we will jump right into the conversation. Sharon Hade Miller. Uh, who also holds a PhD, is the teaching pastor at Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina, which she co-founded with her husband, Ike. She is the author of Free of Me and Nice. She has been a regular contributor to Propel Her Menudics, and she reads truth and has written for Relevant, Christianity Today, and many other publications and blogs. And she currently lives with Ike and their three children in Durham, North Carolina. And I absolutely love this conversation so much. If you subscribe to the newsletter, uh, you know that this is one of my recommended reads and, and I am just very grateful that we get to have this conversation. So without any further wait, here is our conversation.
Well, Sharon, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. It's great to be with you. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the questions that I usually like to start out with is I love hearing the story behind the book or the story behind the work of art. And so mm-hmm. I would just love to hear from you. What's the the event, the series of mm-hmm. events that led you to explore just many of the ideas behind the cost of control? Mm-hmm. Well, not surprisingly, a big event that inspired the book was the pandemic. And I really hate to admit that because during the pandemic, I kept saying, I'm not going to write a pandemic book. I'm not going to write a pandemic book. Cause I was like, this is going to launch a thousand books, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, as I was watching the people in our church and the people, you know, Christians online respond to the pandemic, it was very insightful about the state of discipleship in the church right now. And specifically, I felt like it was exposing this stronghold of control within the church because you could see the way people were scrambling this like loss of predictability, this loss of certainty was just, you know, throwing people for a loop. But rather than take all those fears, you know, to God, we were taking those fears to the internet, basically. Mm-hmm. And we were searching for some other you know, sense of control in our lives. And so observing this, to me, it it meant, okay, this is something I really want to dig deeper into as an element of spiritual formation and discipling our people. But at the same time, I also tend to teach best when I'm speaking out of my own sin. And so I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe I need to turn the focus on myself and search myself and, and ask if, if this is something I struggle with, because honestly, if you had asked me three years ago, if I struggle with control, I would have said no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't really, I, it's not something that I feel out of control a lot. And so I didn't think that I struggled with it. But what this whole journey really unearthed is that is because I simply didn't understand all the ways that control manifests. And part of what it revealed in me was a, yes, I do struggle with control because I am a human being, but B, there are ways that we seek to control the world around us that we are not naming as being about control at all. And because we're not seeing that we're breaking a lot of things in the process. And so that was really revealing to me. So yes, the short answer is I do struggle with control. And this, this really was very convicting to walk out. And it, honestly, it continues to be like, now yeah. that I've, I've kind of illuminated this in my life, I cannot tell you every day. I'm like, Oh, oh. <laughs> this is such a problem. Lord yeah. help me. So that's the story. Oh. No, there, there's so much there that I, I want to follow up on and, and ask you about. I guess I, I want to start with, you mentioned that there's a time to wherever you thought, okay, I I don't struggle with mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. And then you discovered it. And so I would love for you to kind of tease out, mm-hmm. like whenever you thought that, what did control look like mm-hmm. to you that made you go, I do not struggle with that? Yeah, that's a really great question. I associated people who struggle with control are the same as people who are controlling. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I thought a leader who struggles with control is a controlling leader. You know, a leader who struggles with control is someone who creates a culture of fear at their church, who is domineering, Mm -hmm. who is aggressive, you know, same in, in somebody's life that 
a person who struggles with control is someone who either like is a controlling person or is just constantly feeling out of control because of things that they can't, you know, predict in their lives. And honestly, that is not me. Like I, I don't struggle with anxiety about the future. I don't struggle with anxiety about transitions, about change, like any of that. And so I just thought I was a very well-adjusted person. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But what I started to realize is that there are a bunch of different ways that control can manifest. So one really common form for pastors, and this was more actually true of my husband, and, and he would be totally fine with me saying this, but for pastors, one way this manifests is this inability to stop working and this inability mm-hmm. to rest and this inability to really honor Sabbath and to have healthy boundaries between your work and your life. And this deep down belief that if I stop working, if I take a break, if I take a sabbatical, then this whole thing is actually going to fall apart. Because at the end of the day, yes, it depends on God, but also it depends on me. I'm the one that shows up. I'm the one that delivers the sermon, all of that. That is about control. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem like it. It looks, it can actually look very saintly. You know, you're, you're laying yourself down, you're serving your church, you're sacrificing for your church, but because it's ultimately about control, you can't let go of this thing. It ultimately leads to burnout. And so that's one of the reasons why we don't recognize it. Yeah. Well, and people will reward you for it too. hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Another one that, that you talk about in the book is you talk about wanting to control like your reputation Mm -hmm. as well. And what other people think about you, which is one that, like, I feel like for over the past year, that's been one that I've like, oh, yeah, this this is a struggle for me a lot mm-hmm. more than I would have realized. Can you talk about that and, and how that's manifested in your life? Yeah, anyone who has been in leadership in the last two years can relate to the challenge of making decisions. And this is not just true for pastors. This is true for teachers, any any leader of an organization, honestly has been faced with this relentless line of lose-lose decisions as we responded to the pandemic, as we dealt with, you know, political polarization, racial tension, all of that. And so no matter what my husband and I did, we lead our church together, no matter the decision we made, how we presented it, we were going to disappoint people. But not just that, it wasn't just that people were disappointed in us. It was sometimes them impugning our character. You know, like you made this decision because of this fundamental flaw in your integrity or this flaw in your theology. And that was really painful. It was also to be just completely honest with you, that brought out my pride with like a vengeance because I have gone to so much school, (laughs) you know, like I've got my indiv and I got my PhD. And so if someone wants to take me on scripture, I'm like, you showed up, you know, with a knife to a gunfight. Like I, you, you don't want to take me on in scripture. Like you don't want to take me on in theology. Like I will outmaneuver you in my sleep. You know, that's, and this is me confessing sin right now. Yeah. I am not yeah. saying that that is godly at all. It is not, that is, is my total pride. 
But some of it was thinking like, I so pride myself on people thinking that Sharon is soaked in scripture and all of her decisions are rooted in that and in sound theology. And if someone doesn't think that about me, it's it really gets under my skin. And so I, then it launches me into this, okay, how do I change their mind about me? Like, how do I present myself in a way, the way that I post on social media, the way that I, you know, preach on Sunday mornings, you know, whatever it is to prove to them that I am not what they think about me. And again, that is about control. You, you want to control what people think of you, which we cannot do. We, we know this every time we read the gospels that Jesus lived the perfect life and people still didn't like him. So we can read that. But when it actually happens in our lives, we become convinced. I just need to do this. If I just did this, if I just said it this way, then I can change their minds about me. And we can't, but control deceives us into thinking that we can. What helps you with that? You know, first of all, I'll say it's very hard. It's still honestly very painful. And for anyone who's listening, who's going through that, I wish I could say that it has gotten easier and it hasn't really because you're a person and these are real relationships and you're talking about people that you care about. And anytime someone you love accuses you of something or misunderstands you or interprets something you said uncharitably, it just hurts. And I think Jesus, again, attests to this. You know, Jesus didn't just emotionally float above everything that happened to him. You could tell he was wounded by it. So I want to just speak that over anyone to know that this is very normal human pain. But the thing that I I finally had to come to grips with, I remember very clearly one day I was driving in the car and I was thinking about one situation in particular that was really painful to me and how frustrated I was. And it was like in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, this work that you are called to is ultimately not about you. And people's salvations don't hang in the balance on your name. Like your name is not getting anyone to heaven. Your name is not going to break chains and set people free. Only Jesus's name can do that. And so I need to accept the fact that if people leave our church, if they think badly of me and my husband, but they are still good with Jesus, that's okay. That's mm -hmm. okay. And to some extent, that's almost a win. Now, if, if, if something we've done is being misinterpreted in a way that gets in the way of that, you know, that is yeah. creating church hurt, then that's a different question. But if people leave our church just because they don't like us, but they, they still love Jesus, that's okay. You know, I, yeah. I think of like Philippians where Paul says, you know, are they slandering me? You know, are they, you know, saying all this junk about me as long as Christ is preached, you know, I want to live in that kind of freedom. And so that's something that I have to return to a lot, but it doesn't come easily. Yeah. Talk to me about 
like dealing with that. And I even think about um, you mentioned your husband Ike's like mm-hmm. the work the workaholism mm-hmm. in that as well. Whenever like people are rewarding you mm-hmm. for like for for lack of better term like poor, poor behavior mm-hmm. or like th- like you're controlling behavior mm-hmm. even though it doesn't look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and especially like with the with the reputation thing of like oh you know and we could go back to Jesus why are you hanging out with these people mm-hmm. because you know they're they're not the people like how do you deal with that tension mm-hmm. of people are rewarding you mm-hmm. for your controlling behavior mm-hmm. how do you fight against that yeah well for us personally one thing that has helped a lot is we are a church plant our church is less we'll turn actually we turn four later this month and so we're very very young and because of that we have had it's been much easier for us to shape the culture of our church we're not Mm -hmm. coming in Mm -hmm. and having to turn the titanic which i know some people are stuck in that situation whether or not it's your church your organization or maybe it's your family you know (laughs) you're in a family that rewards workaholism whatever it is but we we have cultivated a very specific culture in our church that revolves around rhythms of Sabbath. And so we, we observe Sabbath. Ike and I do, everyone knows we observe Sabbath every week on the same day. We have really solid boundaries about in the evenings, my husband turns off his phone. We also take a week off after Christmas and then a week off during the 4th of July to make sure our staff is resting. And then we explain to our church whenever we're coming up on a Sabbath Sunday, this is why, like theologically, why it is so important for us to rest, not just because this is God's gift to us, but because it reminds us of the right order of things. And so that has actually amazingly creating that culture has held us accountable to it. Because yeah. there have been times, and, and and I'm not so, I have my own vices. I have other vices. Workaholism is actually not one of my vices. But for my husband, Ike, there have been times where he has jumped in to do something and our staff has been like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yep. And I love it because they're they're not rewarding that. They're calling it out and they're saying in 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 total love, you know, not in like yeah. a chastising oh, yeah. way, but in total love they're saying this is the culture that you have created and now we are going to hold you to it so that you can be healthy as well. And so that that's how it has worked for us. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, and so just for clarification, so you take the Sunday off or that whole week off? For Sabbath Sunday, yes, yeah. we take, so we take, um, and actually this past year, because Christmas fell on, I think, a Sunday, mm-hmm. we actually took off two Sundays because we yeah. we had a Christmas Eve service Saturday, and then obviously we weren't going to have church the next day. And so we took off the following Sunday as well, because otherwise we weren't giving our staff a break, really. Yeah. And so we do that every December and then the whatever is the closest Sunday to July 4th, we also take off that Sunday. Man, I love that. Uh, I would love to hear what's another like subtle, subtler way mm-hmm. that control can manifest in, in our life. We talk about reputation, workaholism, mm-hmm. what else? So the number one, I would argue, 
that that we run to to either exert control on others or to simply help us to feel more in control is knowledge and information. And that is not, at least for me, the thing that I associate as being about control. When I think about control, I think about power dynamics primarily. Mm-hmm. But going all the way back to Genesis 3, and, and this book is just, you know, this it's a long meditation on Genesis 3 in this moment when prior to sin entering the world, Adam and Eve have everything they need to flourish. They have freedom. They have influence. They have authority. They have purpose. So they're not puppets. They're not prisoners, even though God is in charge. They have you know, all this power actually, but the one thing they lack is control. And so they violate that, that boundary. They want more knowledge. They want more godlike stature. And so they eat of the fruit of this tree. And anytime we reach for control, more control than God has given us, we are reenacting that moment in a lot of different forms. But the original form of it in ground zero is them reaching for more knowledge. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think there is actually this relationship between us and knowledge that we believe knowledge is more powerful than it actually is. We believe it is more powerful to change people. We believe it is more powerful to help us feel in control. And these are both illusions, but they play out in a lot of different ways. And so one way that this manifested for me, I already mentioned wanting to control what people thought of me. And this was my my go-to is I thought if I just tell you all the scripture that informed these decisions, if I show you the theological framework, if I, you know, sh- connect you with all the experts in our church that we consulted or the other pastors that we sought wise counsel from. And then I bring all this to you and present it in just the right way and download it into your brain. Then I can change you. I can get you to see things the way that I see them. And this never worked. This never worked. And, and so what, what the whole point of the book is that we are reenacting that moment in Genesis three but we're also reenacting its consequences. And so we see immediately after they eat that fruit, there is anxiety, there is shame, there is relational division. And I experienced that with this, you know, it, it did not work to change them. It only created more anxiety in me because I'm the one laying awake at night, rehashing these conversations over and over thinking, if I say it this way, if I say it this way, like maybe that will change their minds. But it also strained my relationships with them because people don't want to be controlled. People don't want to feel like you are trying to change me. And even if it's gentle, it doesn't have to be aggressive or overt. People will buck against that. And so that's one way that this this plays out. But another way we run to knowledge as a form of control is to give us simply the feeling of control. And a lot of times without even realizing it, that's really what we're after. It's not necessarily that we want to be in control. We just want to feel in control. And that was what you saw, especially in those early months of the pandemic, was everyone going online and and reading and researching about, you know, this new virus and how does it work? How does it spread? What are the symptoms? How can I know if maybe I am, you know, have caught it? Whatever it is, we're going to the internet, expecting it to empower us 
you know, to restore that sense of certainty that we had just lost. And that did not happen. Yeah. <laughs> that did not happen. <laughs> it just turned into more of like a dumpster fire. Yeah. So that's, that's probably the number one to be aware of. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I can't remember if you, you mentioned, you might mention this in the book, but I even imagine like how that leads to conspiracy theories mm-hmm. as well too, because you start, the, you gain more knowledge and it's mm-hmm. like, okay, I have, like I have to find yeah. an explanation for yeah, this. Yeah. I'm going to connect these dots to give me a sense of predictability and a sense mm-hmm. of, of certainty. And, and really what it is, is the illusion of control. It's only the illusion of control. And because it, it is, you know, we're trying to control something that God hasn't given us control over, it has a ton of fallout. Yeah. So what does a healthy relationship with knowledge look like? Yeah. Well, I, so throughout the book, I also look at how God does not give us control, but he does give us agency. Mm-hmm. And the way I define agency, it's the power to influence ourselves and our circumstances and the operative word there being influence. So not control. Agency understands the limitations of its power that I, I can influence the process, but I cannot determine the outcome. Control is not satisfied with that. Control wants to determine the outcome as well. And I think that's a really helpful framework for thinking about really any tool that we might use to control can can also be used in, in very healthy ways. But where we go awry is where we leave the domain of influence into the domain of outcome. And so with knowledge, I mean, knowledge is wonderful. Knowledge is is how we know God, you know, it's how we grow closer to mm-hmm. God. It's It's how we learn about the world that God created. I wouldn't be doing the job that I'm doing, I wouldn't be writing books if I thought yeah. knowledge, you know, wasn't important, but understanding that I can teach, I can influence my church, I can influence my readers, but I cannot determine the outcome. I can't control what they do with that knowledge. And as soon as I forget that and start trying to, you know, engineer things, that's when you go off the rails. Mm. Let's go back to uh, agency mm-hmm. and control. Mm-hmm. What are some of the indicators for you that help you go, oh, I am I am dipping more into mm-hmm. control and agency? Because I just think of, and we talked about it earlier, it's so easy for us to deceive mm-hmm. ourselves yeah. in it. Yeah, for me, anxiety is a huge indicator that I'm trying to control something that God has not given me to control. And so it's really helpful. Another form of agency that I name is is actually when we see in Genesis 3, which is self-examination. And that doesn't seem like a, a power really, but it's really, really important. And we see the failure of it, the the failure to exercise this agency in Genesis three, when God asks Adam, where are you? And that question that he asks Adam is a rhetorical question. He's, God is not wondering where Adam is. He's not confused. The, The omniscient God of the universe hasn't been stumped by this big tree that Adam found to hide behind. And so that question, where are you? That is a question for Adam's sake, where he is asking him to search himself and to pause and and to ask, how did you get here? 
like what happened? Where, where did we go off the rails here where I had given you everything that you needed? I loved you so well. Why didn't you come to me? Why didn't you ask questions? You know, any, any of that? Why did you hide? Like all these things. And so self-examination is a really important form of agency. And for me, whenever I can feel my anxiety start to like ratchet up, that is the moment when I pause and ask myself, okay, what is going on here? Like, how did you get to this place? Like, what, why are you feeling this way? And it, and it's so easy. Another thing that we see in that moment in Genesis three is God asks Adam this question. He asks Adam to search himself. Adam is unable to do that. And instead he does what control does is locate the problem elsewhere. He blames Eve. This is the problem over here. We need to fix this. And, you know, God's sitting here thinking like, no, Adam, like you need to look at yourself. You need to search yourself. But that's what we do is, is we think yeah. I feel anxious right now because of this person over here. And that might be partially true, but we, because of that assumption, we never pause to ask, but maybe also, am I trying to control something that I, I'm not supposed to control? And so that, that has been really, really helpful for me is just to like pay attention to, um, my body, like if I wake up in the morning and my jaw is really sore, like I've been clenching my jaw all night. If I, you know, my back is tense. Um, I've also this last year, I started getting stomach ulcers and I would have told you, I'm not really stressed out, but my body was telling me something different. I, I recently heard Rich Velotis. He's a for anyone yep. that doesn't know, yep. he's a he's pastor. Been on the podcast oh, great. Um, yep. I he recently heard him say at his church, they talk about the body being a major prophet, not a minor prophet. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that is so great because it's true. Like your body tells you like what's going on oftentimes before. And so that, that has been really, this is a very long answer to your question. No, that, this is great. That is how one of the ways I'm able to stop and ask Am I trying to control or am I trying to walk in the God-given power that was given to me? Mm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the body, which you also you also write about mm -hmm. in the book, mm -hmm. too, of how we try to control our body. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think there's a temptation to think of, oh, man, that's just a female thing. Mm -hmm. But that's very much a male thing mm -hmm. as well. Can you kind of talk about what control of our body mm -hmm. look like looks like? Mm -hmm. So there's a section where I look at different areas of our lives that we try to control and what is the cost. And I have a whole chapter on trying to control our bodies and how the cost of that is body shame and alienation from our bodies. And we do think of, of that as being a primarily female struggle because we are in a culture that is constantly telling women don't age, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. here is how, here's the product that can help you defy aging, that can help you make your body submit to you. But that's not the only lie that our culture tells us in regard to our body. We're also told you can maintain your weight this way. You can um, take these supplements, have this certain diet so that you don't get cancer. And that is, does not discriminate against you know, only women, like it, it's, it's women and men. I was actually just reading, this is really random. This is super random, but I was reading just the other day, this interview with Zac Efron. And mm -hmm. I bet you did not expect we we're going to talk about Zac Efron today. 
As I did not, but I love when the conversation <laughs> goes this way. We've been like, we've been watching the high school musical uh, movies a lot this summer. So I guess yeah. he's on my radar. But um, yeah, he was saying that for a number of years ago, he was in a movie called Baywatch. It was like a reboot. Mm-hmm. And his workout routine for that was so just intense that he he was having to he could only eat the same three meals every single day he had to work out a certain amount he was having to take diuretics for some reason i don't know anything about working i don't know what that would have to do with working out or getting a certain physique but i guess it was dehydrating him somehow and he became he said on he said on the one hand you look at my body in that movie and it looked almost like cgi'd it was just this like perfect muscular build but he said the psychological fallout of that regime regimen um it messed him up it wrecked his relationship with his body so he had on the one hand totally controlled his body made it look exactly how he wanted to and it, it wrecked him. And so I, th- I think too, even with the body image stuff, or I tell the story of wrestlers, that was something that Ike did in high school where he could just make his weight go like up and down. And, you know, the guys that take the protein shakes and they know like how to make their bodies submit to them. And yeah. we just have to be really careful with that thinking because your body is not designed to submit to you. You know, your yeah. body is not designed to serve you. It is a part of you. And when we think of it as something that we can control, the fallout can be pretty catastrophic. Yeah. And I think just what you were saying, I've I've just found in myself, there's such a strong tendency to think like there's me Mm -hmm. and then there's my body. It's like, nope. Yeah. It's all, all one. Yeah. Yeah. One of, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about as it pertains to like my body and stuff is. I'm, I've been starting to run more. And so I've had to pay more attention to like, oh, my legs are hurting. It is time to walk. And there's Mm -hmm. everything in me. That's like, nope, I want to keep running. (laughs) Like, Yeah. Well, and I'm getting to the age now where I'm starting to have back pain Mm -hmm. a lot. And some of it is I have this weird physical, I don't know if it's like a birth defect where my bottom vertebrae is like fused to my tailbone for some reason. And because of that, I cannot sit on hard floors or else it really wrecks my back. Mm. And I'm, I'll have like terrible, terrible back pain. And so I have to, I'm in the phase of my life now where I have to like baby my back and I have to sleep in a certain way. And if I sleep the wrong way, I'm going to be punished for it. And I was just, I woke up this morning thinking about it, how it's frustrating that I have to do that because I'm getting older, but that's also just a natural part of aging. And it's, it's not as if my body is failing me in some way. This is just the, the normal, like, you know, human process. And if I start thinking as if body, why aren't you holding up your end of the bargain? I'm just going to resent this good part of creation. Yeah. And it almost makes me again, this would be impossible, but it's like our body is like, well, why aren't you taking care of me? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that is the, another helpful way to think about the difference between agency and control is I categorize this in that final section of the book under creation care. 
and how our bodies are a part of God's good creation. And we have this mandate in Genesis 2 to care for and watch over creation. And that includes your bodies. And so, if, yes, take care of your body. Don't neglect your body. Neglect is not the opposite of control. You know, steward this good part of creation, but also understand you cannot control it. Yeah, that also makes me, or and another thing that I want to talk with you about is you write in the book how um, it, it might be a little bit more difficult for us of this idea of control because we have been discipled into mm-hmm. having control. And so I would love mm-hmm. to talk about that more and like two aspects. Mm-hmm. One, how have you seen that play out like just in America as well, like the broader sense, whether you're Christian or not. And then I'd love to talk about how have you seen that play out in the church too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, in the beginning of the book, I look at why we struggle with control in the first place. And a big part of the reason is theological, which we've already talked about in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve make this choice, it rewrites the blueprint of creation where now we're sort of doomed to repeat this again and again until Jesus essentially comes and intervenes to fix it for us. So that's one reason why we struggle with it. But another reason we struggle with it is our culture is constantly reinforcing this illusion of control. We just mentioned the ways that it promises you can control your body. But that's just one of many, many ways because of our technology, we have this power of predictability that that a lot of cultures, most cultures have never had. You know, you can know what the weather is probably going to be a week from now. You can know if there's like a hurricane, you know, headed this way that's going to be here in a week and a half. You can know almost in real time what is happening on the other side of the world when there is a news event. And so because of this technology, you know, another example, we have basically a medical school level wealth of knowledge on the internet. So if you're feeling a physical symptom, you can go on the internet and read about it. Now, do you have the expertise to sort through that? 100% no, but it is available to us. And that deceives us into thinking we have more control than we did before that Mm -hmm. we have, because we do have more predictability, but we don't have more certainty. And so one of the things that I I say in the book is basically thanks to our technology, which in many ways is a tremendous gift, you know, the increased life expectancy, all that huge, huge gift. But what has happened is it has contributed to this illusion that our control over the world, our mastery over the world has increased by miles when it has really only grown by inches. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, the world is just as impredict- unpredictable as it ever was. Um, our ability to control things is just as limited as it ever was for the most part in comparison with God. And I think the pandemic in some ways was a gift to expose that, that illusion, because it wasn't as if we were living in a world where pandemics didn't happen. I mean, Mm -hmm. they happen kind of every 100 years. Like there's still people alive right now from the last pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) But I think because of our technology, we've been lulled into thinking we have evolved past that now. Like we can control those things so that it doesn't happen to us anymore. And it was a cold slash of reality to realize 
no, actually the world is still very chaotic mm -hmm. <laughs> and we're still very vulnerable to it, but we just are less spiritually prepared for it now. Yeah. And I, I want to talk with you and you, you reference this in, in the book of one of the, the things that happens in the church that can help us, um, or it doesn't help us, but makes us believe that we have more control than we do. It's like the prosperity gospel. And that being, mm -hmm. you know, and that being preached of like, oh, if you mm -hmm. do the right things, if you pray enough, if you give enough, you know, whatever you do, you will experience, you know, the mm -hmm. blessed life, a successful mm -hmm. life. And mm -hmm. I would love to hear what are some of the other, like the teachings, the theologies mm -hmm. in there that you would say, mm -hmm. these, these are also things that lead to us believing that we have greater control than what we think that we do. Yeah. Well, just to kind of tease that out for folks who haven't read the book, yeah. I look at different tools of control, essentially things that we run to, to control or to feel in control. We've already talked about knowledge and information as being one of those tools, but another big one is theology and theology can be a tool of control to control other people. And I, I think maybe less commonly. So, you know, you see that mostly in cults, you probably see it also in fundamentalism where there's this combination of theology and shame that are used to make people fall in line or behave a certain way. But what I was much more interested in was this much more common way that we relate to theology to give us a sense of control in the world. And that is the prosperity gospel. And for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what that is, the prosperity gospel is actually, it's almost the human default to understanding our relationship with God. It's yeah. this very transactional relationship with God where we believe that God will reward good behavior and God will punish bad behavior. And so if something good happens to this person, it's because they are favored by God. And if something bad happens to them, it's because they disobeyed in some way. And we see this in like honestly almost every world religion like, <laughs> because I think it's such a common way of thinking about our relationship with God and it's so common that we even see it in Jesus's disciples you know when when they encounter this man born blind and their first question is well who sinned that's a prosperity theology way of thinking that this man must be blind because either he or his parents screwed up in some way, you know, and this is the consequence. This is the punishment for that. Now, that is not how scripture actually narrates our relationship with God. On the one hand, we have the book of Proverbs, which is full of wisdom for how to live a flourishing life. And, you know, Proverbs warns, like if you you know, go and commit adultery. It's not going to go great, man. You yeah. know, you have that, but at the same time you have Ecclesiastes, which is asking why do the wicked prosper? You know, help me make sense of the fact that these people are living wickedly, but they seem to be doing great in life. And so we don't have this really clear one-to-one -one relationship where the people who are wealthy, it's because they've made all the right decisions in life. That's not, we, we see sometimes people are wealthy because they cheated, they stole, they were greedy, you know, that sort of a thing. So we see the disciples falling into this, despite the fact that this is not biblical thinking. Why did they do that then? Why did they do that? And the reason is what they're doing is they are reckoning with 
their vulnerability in an unpredictable world, Mm -hmm. in a chaotic, broken world. And they are narrating reality and they're narrating faith in a way that makes them feel more in control, that makes them feel less vulnerable. Because if I can point to why this man is blind and then I don't do that thing, then this isn't going to happen to me. I don't have to worry about this happening to me or my kids. And that is, that is about control at its core. It's a way of, it's an illusion of control. Now it's easy to point to that and see it happening there, but I, I do that. You know, I do that when I'm scrolling through social media and I come across this awful story and the first thing I think is, well, this happened to them because of where they live, or this happened to them because of the way that they parent, or this happened to them because of whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. I am trying to come up with reasons why I am safe from that happening to me. And that is a control response. And so that's been really, really convicting, but uh, a secular version of this, and I mentioned this in the book, but a secular version of this that is really popular right now is this idea called manifesting. Had you heard of this before? I hadn't before, before I read it in your book. Manifesting. It's really popular um, among more secular social media influencers and self-help gurus. And it's kind of this idea that whatever your dreams are, you need to just manifest it into the world by like really wanting it and like envisioning your life this way and, you know, taking these steps. And and if you do that, then you will manifest this, this future into your life. And all that that really is, is a secular version of the prosperity gospel. Mm. And, 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 but what it's the insidious underbelly of it is what it implies for people that are poor. You know, what it implies for people who are on the margins is that that's your fault, you know, or anyone who's going through suffering too. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that you, and, and that's the cruelty of it too, is if you, you know, subscribe to this, it's going to come for you. Yeah. When things fall apart, it's going to come for you. And then you're going to be blamed for your own misfortune. Mm. Yeah. Uh, are there any other like the theologies or anything like that, that you would say contribute to this sense of uh, control in us? Mm-hmm. I think that's the main one. I mean, I already mentioned shame, mm-hmm. the combination, and I have a separate chapter on shame, but shame is a really powerful way to control people. Mm-hmm. And especially, again, we, we think of this maybe with Pharisees, you know, religious authorities, but I think parents do it all the time. You know, we do it to our kids all the time. (laughs) We, we, you know, shame them to get them to behave the way that they want. We tell them I'm so disappointed in you. And, you know, sometimes there, there's a place for expressing your disappointment, your disapproval. But when we are, you know, shaming the person to get them to behave a certain way, And when we couple that with Christian language, Mm. it becomes really, really toxic. And it's powerful. It's really powerful. But if you want to really mess up your kid's relationship with God, (laughs) that's a way to do it. (laughs) That's a way to do it. Uh, A a quote that you have in there, and I want to read it. I want to ask you about it then that really stood out to me. 
is you say, we would rather imagine a reality in which we have control than be honest with ourselves, which gives us a whole new meaning to the term my truth. When it comes to control, we are quite literally willing to invent a personalized version of reality. And I would just love to ask, talk to me just about that dynamic that you see Mm -hmm. and how you see that play out in reality. Yeah, I have a chapter on the illusion of control. And that was a term that I've used many times before. But it wasn't until researching for this book that I realized it is an actual psychological term. And it was a term that was coined in the 70s by a researcher who was noticing this it's, it's almost like a human pathology where we imagine we have control where there is none. You know, we, we imagine we have control even though we don't. And so there's some really fun, funny, harmless ways this plays out. There's been studies on casino players that found that when they want to roll a high number, they'll shake the dice harder. And when they want to roll a low number, they shake it softer. And that doesn't do anything at all. (laughs) But it makes you feel like you're doing something, you know. Um, Another kind of fun version of this is players who will wear the same socks or the same underwear, you know, whatever it is during the playoffs. And so that's like a superstition, but that's also an illusion of control. It's, it's helping you to feel in control, even though this is completely invented. It's, it's not real, has nothing to do with reality at all. And so we will imagine control in, in all sorts of ways, but what was really fascinating to me about it is they, they, there's been a ton of studies on this and they found that part of the reason we do this is that we experience some measurable emotional benefit from it. Hmm. So when you think you are in control, it actually does make you feel better. You, it does lower your anxiety. It does lower your depression for time. And so that is why we run to these. It's, it's sort of like a quick fix that soothes our anxieties. The problem is it's an illusion. Yeah. And so sooner or later, it is going to get shattered. But it's it's helpful to understand, and, and I've mentioned this already, you know, not to pick on the pandemic, but that is what happens in those early months is we're seeing we've been turning to technology to give us this sense of certainty about the world. What we we're really doing was just retreating into this illusion of control to help us cope with reality. And we were doing this instead of taking a lot of our fears to God. And we were doing this chronically. But all of a sudden, this thing happened that shattered that. And we kind of had these old habits of, okay, well, I'm going to go to the internet to give me a sense of certainty about this new thing. You know, going back to trying to find this illusion of control. It's not working. You can you could almost watch the anxiety just feed on itself on social media because people are trying to retreat into this illusion of control and it's not working. And so then people are trying to find illusions of control elsewhere. And I honestly think one of the main areas of this became I have another chapter on autonomy oh. as another way that a tool of control And I think that is what a lot of people really doubled down on was I can't control what's happening in the world, but I can control me. I can control my body. 
And so if my government or my pastor or my family or my friends try to tell me what to do right now, I'm not going to do it because this is the only thing I have left to control. This is my only illusion of control that is left for me. And so that's the problem with the illusion of control is, is we're retreating into these, these unrealities because they, they temporarily make us feel good. But we're doing that instead of taking these fears and these anxieties to God. And so whenever we're confronted with actual reality, we are spiritually unprepared for it. Talk to me. You know, the pandemic is a good example of it, but we also have things that just happen in our lives that are very mm-hmm. personalized. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the rug gets pulled out from us um, and it feels like there is no, there is literally nothing I can do. Or like my mm-hmm. there is something that I could do, but I have to wait because it's a timing thing. Talk to me about like dealing with it when it's like, okay, the best form of like agency that I can exhibit is that I have to wait. What has Mm -hmm. helped you in that? Well, part of what has helped me is understanding the cost of control. Hmm. You know, that was really the whole inspiration for the book at the end of the day was, you know, I saw the ways that people were running to control. I could see it in myself. But I have also known my whole life, I shouldn't control. Like as a Christian, I shouldn't control. I should release. I should surrender. I should trust God. And that is 100% true. But it was also not helpful to me. (laughs) Like in the middle of it, knowing that you should do something is less compelling than knowing why. Mm -hmm. And this book is kind of that why. It's that it's not just that you don't have control. It's not just that you shouldn't try to control, but that it will cost you when you try. Mm -hmm. And that to me was really motivating to drop control like a hot potato because there are times where my husband and I are, you know, we're leading together. We're making decisions together. We don't, sometimes we don't agree. And in those moments, I can push him. I can pressure him. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, shouting him down, being aggressive, screaming, none of that. But I know how to say the right things to get him to make the decision that I think he should make. And I might get that decision, but it will cost our marriage. It will, it will cost our intimacy. And, And the thing that is also really chastening about that is I might not see that cost today. I might not see it this year. I might not see it for a long time, but slowly but surely it is eroding away at the foundation of our marriage because people are not designed to be controlled. And that has been just so chastening to me to back off that. Is it worth it to me? The hit that this is going to take to my marriage is this decision worth a hit to my marriage? And that was a very, very different question. Same with my parenting. You know, is it worth it to get my kids to always behave all the time, to make them do exactly what I want them to do all the time, controlling my kids? Is that worth it to corrode that relationship of trust like that I won't see until for 10, 20 years even? So first of all, that has been just accepting the fact that you cannot control people. People are not designed to be controlled. And if you try, it will fracture that relationship even worse. So that to me, maybe it's just my personality, that has been incredibly motivating. 
but then to to ask you know what can i do what can i do like what what agency do i have in this situation and sometimes you do have some influence but trying to control the situation under thinking i can control the outcome that is that needs to be off limits but you know i can I can control myself in the sense I can self-examine, I, I can pray, um, I can find healthy outlets, you know, for what I'm wrestling with. Another, honestly, I think a really can be healthy response when things in your life are out of control is just organizing your life. You know, I tend to clean my house when my life is out of control. And I don't think that that is necessarily, I think that's a form of naming and ordering, which we see in, yeah. in, in Genesis as a form of power where it strays into control, where I can tell this is not about agency, this is about control, is when my kids then go mess up the house and I lose my ever-loving mind. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, this was actually also about control. <laughs> uh, well, i got two other things I want to ask you about. But before okay. um, before I do that, I always love just asking people, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we talk about? You know, the main thing that I, I tend to end all of these conversations with that I think is really important to say is that this control is not just about sin or idolatry or pride, which is how I tended to think about it. It is also a result of living in a profoundly broken world. Hmm. And part of the reason that we wrestle with control is that we live in this post-Genesis 3 world, but we are created for Genesis 1 and 2. And our souls feel that dissonance with the world. You know, we were created for security. We were created for stability. And so desiring that is not wrong. God actually put that desire inside of you. And so to know that that is, that is good, that is okay to desire those things and, and to, to speak that grace, especially when if anyone's listening and they're in the thick of something really devastating to say that your desire to control your adult child, you know, your desire to rescue them, essentially to get them to turn around or your loved one, you know, whatever it is that's happening, that desire for things to be whole is a desire that your father in heaven shares with you. Mm -hmm. And that's why he sent Jesus. It's just the way that we try to fix it that is where we go off the rails. But mm. the desire itself is not wrong at all. Mm. That's so good. Um, I know that you did a ton of research for this book. Like, can you mm -hmm. quote, you know, I think Barry Schwartz is one of them, Steve Cuss, and mm -hmm. then I think it's Edward, mm -hmm. uh, Edwin? Ed Edwin Freeman. Edwin Freeman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love to ask, what's one of the things that while you were researching and learning that you mm -hmm. learned, it could be from them, it could be from someone else, and you're like, wow, this is, mm -hmm. a, this is a game changer for you. Yeah. So Barry Schwartz's book, The Paradox of Choice, is really fascinating. And that book, I think, was written in like 2004. And so mm -hmm. it's it's almost 20 years old now. But he he writes about choice overwhelm, you know, how we we live in this really interesting moment in time where we have so many options available to us and how having freedom of choice is very good and it's very healthy. And, and when you don't have choice, when you don't have freedom, that is, does not promote human flourishing, essentially. That is deprivation, essentially. But you can swing too far in the opposite direction. 
where you have an overabundance of choice and overabundance of options. And there's been a lot of studies showing that when this happens, it becomes paralyzing. You, you can't make decisions. Making decisions, it actually produces great anxiety because you start thinking, well, if I have like 20 options, how do I sort through all that? And, and how do I make sure I'm making the right choice? Whereas if you just have one choice, you know, <laughs> you don't have to deliberate. Yeah. There's just the one choice. Yeah. And so he, he does a lot of really fascinating research. And, and I thought that intersected with this conversation on control in a really fascinating way, because we, we think that having more options is going to empower us. I think there's a real close connection there between choice and control. But one thing that he said that I still think about and I'm still processing and mm-hmm. I did not expect him to go there at all. I have a chapter on it is that one of the areas of our lives where we have an abundance of choice is in identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, it used to be that if you were a woman, if you were a man, it was sort of generally understood, this is what it means to be a woman. This is what it means to be a man. And to some extent that was not healthy either. You know, it was very narrow. It was kind of like, if you were born as a woman, this is your track, you know, this is where you fit. And if you don't fit into that, then you are less than as a woman or less than as a man. And that was not right. That needed to be corrected. But we've swung hard in this other direction now where we're telling young people, you can literally be anything, anything. And Schwartz was writing because he was writing close to 20 years ago he didn't include gender and sexuality, but that would definitely, I think if he wrote an updated, he would definitely add that. And the, it, it's just something that I think about a lot when, when I think about our kids, we think telling them you can be anything at all is freeing to them, but we don't see that. Our, our kids aren't, thriving, you know, the way that we think this language Mm -hmm. is going to help them to thrive. And I think it's because we're basically saying identity is the new gospel, that once you figure out like who you are, and it's exactly right, exactly what you want it to be, then it's going to set you free, and you're never going to doubt yourself. And that's not working because at the end of the day, that's still like really shifting stand, stand to be standing at. Cause even, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of myself, but who I thought I was 20 years ago is actually very different from how I yeah. see myself now. And so if my whole security is founded on my identity, then that foundation is constantly changing. And so that is the good news of, of Jesus is that our, as Tim Keller puts it, our identities are not achieved, they are received. Yeah. And to, to, to make sure we're standing and saying, really, your identity is in Christ. Nothing else can, can set you free the way that you think that it will. It can help. It can be clarifying. It's not wrong, but it can't be your foundation. And I, I thought that was just a really fascinating way of having this conversation. Yeah. Well, as, as we're closing, one of the things that I would love for you to do, and you begin the book by telling about this story about mm-hmm. Dr. Faust in the bargain. Yeah. I think most people are familiar with it, but I would love uh, for us just to close with you uh, telling that story and what uh-huh. what so strongly resonated with you out of that. 
I love that you asked this because you're literally the only person who has asked me about this. Really? And I'm not yes. going to lie. Like, I, I love how you begin the book with it because I'm like, uh -huh. man, that is like the perfect illustration. Thank you. I was hoping, like, no one mentions it. And I'm like, this is so oh, it's good. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is you said you think most people know this story. Actually, most people do not. I've asked so many people if they know this story and they don't. But there's this, this old Renaissance play written by Thomas Marlowe for anyone who's familiar with, you know, Renaissance playwrights and poets. And so he wrote this, this play that was written off of, it was based off the life of a real person, but exaggerated, you know, significantly. And so it's about this, this guy, this um, scholar who he studies all these different disciplines and he masters them all, but he still feels like there's more to be learned. And so the last discipline, you know, available to him, the last field is magic. So he starts studying magic and he kind of accidentally conjures this demon. And so this demon comes and he talks to him and he says, I want to, I want to hatch a deal with you. I want you to go to your boss, Lucifer. And in exchange for my soul, essentially, I would like 24 years of pretty much absolute power that he can do like whatever he wants. And so it's, it's a really interesting play because you expect him, if you had that sort of power, you would expect him to kind of take over the world. And he does not do that at all. He, d he uses it to do really petty stuff. But then at the end of the 24 years, he realizes, oh, shoot, like I... I'm going to lose my soul now. This was a bad deal. And he starts to think maybe this is also really weird. He's, he's like, maybe I should ask Jesus for help. That's kind yeah. of pasted on there. And then he hesitates too long. And the final scene of this play is demons dragging off his body. And that's how it ends. Yeah. So there you go. Renaissance European <laughs> plays. Not, not, not how we end our movies now. Yeah. So this is where we get this term Faustian bargain from. If you, if anyone has ever heard that term Faustian bargain, and it's basically the idea of a devil's deal. We're more familiar with that term, a, a mm -hmm. devil's deal. And that term refers to this idea that whenever you make a deal with the devil, you lose much more than you gain. And I start out the whole book. That's kind of the like prologue. And I wanted that to be, to kind of set the table of the tone for this book. I wanted it to feel ominous because at, at the end of the day, that was what really helped me and my relationship with control was yeah. knowing that anytime you reach for control, it is quite literally a devil's deal. We are reenacting that moment in Genesis three, where Adam and Eve listened to the devil, you know, believed his promises and then it betrayed them more than they could have ever imagined. And so that's why I started it that way. Is I really wanted that to be on people's minds as they went into this, this discussion of control. So I love that you liked it. Yeah, it, it, it was so great. And I know that people are, they can read about it mm -hmm. in the book. And so where's the best place for people to go to keep up with you and get the book and all of that stuff? Um, anywhere books are sold, you can find it at Amazon or anywhere online. Awesome. Well, Sharon, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for doing the work and writing a very wonderful and very insightful book. Thank you so much.
So coming out of that conversation, here's a couple of things that I'm still thinking about. I think the first thing is just that tension between agency and control and realizing that I am often most frustrated by the things that I that are outside of my control. And I am most tempted not to do the things that I have agency over. Like I find that so many times in my life of just I think it would be so much easier if just blank happened and usually I just can't I can't control whatever that blank is. And just discerning what is what is mine to do and what is someone else's to do and that's not easy it's not easy figuring out that stuff i think another thing that i've just been more aware of is that sometimes we can contribute to the anxiety that other people are feeling as well whether that be through as as sharon and i talked about the harmful theology and things like the the prosperity gospel and the just a work and also just the works mentality as well of that everything everything in your life is ultimately it falls at your feet and you're responsible for that and i just don't think that that's true because there are many things in life that happen to us that we had no control over we didn't get to choose whether we got hurt we didn't get to choose whether when they decided to break up with us or they decided to file for divorce we didn't get to choose when our uh, when our child decided to come out there's so many things in our life that we just do not get to choose and i think that's part of where the tension comes in of realizing that we aren't necessarily responsible for everything that has happened for us however we do have a responsibility to be stewards of everything that has happened in our life as well and that's just a it's just a very difficult tension to manage sometimes because there's many times where stuff that happens to us that we just don't like it we wish that it was different and we wish that maybe we could switch lives maybe with somebody else or we wish that we could turn back the clock or we wish we could fast forward the clock And unfortunately, that just isn't a possibility. And I think one of the things that I've just been trying to focus on is that life can still be good even whenever it's hard, even if it's not the life that you would have chosen for it to be. And that's the power that we could find through Jesus as well. Of just this this amazing and mysterious ability to bring good from evil, from all of the wrong that has happened. And I think the last thing that this conversation made me think about was the story at the end where we were talking about Faust. And, you know, I remember being a little bit familiar with that story. And what astounded me is like, I knew about the deal with the devil that he had made. What I didn't know is that it was only for like 23 years. I I I remember hearing about that and going like, oh, it had to have been decade, like decades upon decades, or even even a few centuries. It was such a even it was just for 23 years, which isn't a short amount of time. But it's shorter than I thought it would have been. And I just think of, man, what what 
and at the end of just realizing that it wasn't satisfying either. And so just thinking through my life of where that is the case to where I've made a trade off or I've made a trade for something and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And it wasn't as satisfying all for the sake of, and in this case is what we've been talking about for greater control. So those are some of the things that I am thinking about. And if you want to keep up with some of the things that I am thinking about, you can subscribe to the newsletter and which is in the show notes and you can uh, continue to get all the books, resources, all of the things that I'm thinking about, learning about as well. And so with that, that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you to Sharon for being on the podcast as well. Really enjoyed this book and highly recommend it. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.